You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. We're uh, looking at closing out the decade here uh, with the last podcast of, uh, of 2019. Uh, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, it's been a, it's been it's been quite a while that we've been doing this podcast. Uh, we started uh, initially recording this uh, way back in 2014, uh, but here we are closing out the decade and looking forward to 2020, uh, which I think is going to be a big year for a variety of reasons. So we had originally conceived of doing another retrospective podcast. Uh, listeners might have uh, enjoyed our previous episode, which we got some good feedback on. Uh, looking back at the year that was 2019 in Asia, talking about some of the biggest trends uh, that came out of the region and. Uh, reviewing what they really would mean uh, going forward. But today we decided that it would actually be more productive to look forward, and we've done this before on the podcast as well. And actually here I'll also plug the upcoming issue of our magazine, which should drop in the first few days of January, where we have a great range of authors um, looking at what is to come ahead in in the year ahead in Asia across a variety of regions, uh, the United States, Japan, the Koreas, China, Southeast Asia, mainland and maritime, Oceania, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia, really the entire gamut of the regions that we cover at The Diplomat are included here. So Prashant and I, because we usually do this podcast in 20 to 30 minutes, we're not going to be able to go into depth into all of those regions. So if you're interested in kind of planning out your year and planning out the issues that you should really be thinking about in Asia in 2020, Really recommend uh, taking a look at our upcoming issue of the magazine. Uh, but I thought we'd do a similar format to the previous episode, Prashant, where each of us mm-hmm. could perhaps emphasize three issues that we think are really going to weigh on the year ahead uh, in Asia. So to kind of kick us off, uh, I thought I thought you know you could um, you could you could uh, tell us what you think is going to be one of the biggest issues that uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on in the coming year. Yeah, so I guess my my first one is is kind of the probably the most obvious one, the the elephant in the room, which is um, sort of the evolution of U.S. Asia policy in a presidential election year, and this is obviously a cyclical thing. Um, and you know, to add to that, there's always going to be a focus on U.S. Asia policy in in key Asian capitals because the United States just has such a big presence and a big role in the Asia Pacific. But next year in particular, I think will be you know very interesting uh, with respect to this because you have obviously the U.S. presidential elections in, in November, but also you know continued speculation about who the eventual Democratic nominee might be that's going to actually contest uh, President Trump uh, in the election, and we're going to see continued storylines next year about you know the continuity and change in U.S. Asia policy. What what will we have in a second Trump term or a new uh, Democratic administration? And and at the same time, we're also going to be looking at uh, you know a series of events in Asia that will be occurring in this context, right? So North Korea, U.S.-China competition, uh, Taiwan elections early next year, but then also um, the events that the administration, the Trump administration, might have next year as well. So the talk about a U.S. Southeast Asia, U.S. ASEAN uh, summit next year that's always going to bring about a discussion about what the United States role in the region is going to be. So I think that's one which uh, we'll, we'll all be looking to very closely in 2020. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think that really is the elephant in the room. I think uh, especially for uh, many of our listeners in Asia, and you know, you and I both uh, travel to the region a fair bit, and the question we both tend to get uh, is, uh, you know, tell us what's going to happen in the United States, uh, which is obviously you know, a very difficult question to answer given the fundamental unpredictability of the Trump administration. Although maybe unpredictability isn't the right way to think about Trump anymore, because in a way, uh, with the sort of attrition of more conventional foreign policy advisors from the administration, especially especially given, uh, you know, the constellation we had in 2017 with folks like um, Jim Mattis uh, and and the like, uh, the Trump administration now looks a lot more like Trump himself. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the constellation of advisors around the president are not the kind of people who are likely to second guess or bureaucratically maneuver to constrain the president's options, right? We don't even have a John Bolton-like character in the administration anymore who might actually work in a very efficient way as a bureaucratic operator to keep the president from actually enacting his foreign policy agenda, which creates new dangers. Um, I think I think you had a very great, uh, you know, good overview of, of many of the big issues to come up next year. And I certainly think the U.S. is going to be looming over everything that we talk about almost on this episode. But one thing I will add also is, uh, you know, um, managing American alliances in the year ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. We are coming up on a deadline for the U.S.-South Korea uh, alliance cost-sharing talks. The Special Measures Agreement does not look like they're going to be get. A, a, they're not going to be able to uh, reach an agreement by the end of the year because the U.S. is simply asking for way too much money—five billion dollars—when the South Koreans are barely willing to go up to a billion, uh, if if that even. Um, so you know we'll have to see if if they can compromise there. U.S.-Japan cost-sharing talks are set to kick off as well. Uh, that agreement has to be finalized by uh, early 2021. So um, those two issues, I think, I would also put on the agenda for next year. It's going to be particularly interesting to see how Trump's foreign policy, given that it is going to be at its Trumpiest, um, is going to deal with the issue of alliance cost-sharing, especially given the president's uh, record on uh, you know criticizing alliances as effectively... Um, scams for the United States and treating them as protection rackets. So that's going to be something that I think is really going to be a big part of of the conversation next year. And of course, in the South Korea-Japan context, we're going to have contentious intra-alliance talks going on at a time when conditions with North Korea are likely to also get worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot to be watching um, next year. And I think in, in all of this is sort of the, the, the big question in the room, right, which is uh, relative to what the United States is doing, you know, how is China and how are other players like Japan, India faring in the region as well? These notions of Indo-Pacific cooperation, Indo-Pacific convergence um, will always be looming uh, ahead. So what was your uh, first uh, key thing to note in the forecast for 2020? Well, you know, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll segue straight into uh, North Korea policy because I just briefly mm-hmm. mentioned that, um, you know, we talked about this on the last episode. And this is actually something that a lot of people are talking about as the year comes to a close, because uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, has set up this dramatic end of year deadline when we're all expecting some kind of major demonstration. Maybe it's even happened by the time this podcast episode comes out, <laughs> depending on uh, how fast things happen. But, you know, uh, he's threatened a Christmas gift. But I think the big lesson is that uh, uh, or the big takeaway going forward into 2020 is that the wheels are coming off of the administration's North Korea diplomacy. The Singapore process that began in June 2018 uh, is really no longer in place. There is no process. It appears that we are likely to return to a crisis. Uh, This is something that I've written about for the upcoming issue uh, of The Diplomat magazine, so I recommend listeners to uh, go take a look at that to see how we actually got here and the fundamental uh, incompatibilities in the diplomacy. Now, the question going forward and here, maybe we do get a little bit of uncertainty, and there's sort of, I think, I think I sort of see two schools of thought on the, uh, two schools of thought on how Trump is likely to respond 
to mm-hmm. the wheels coming off North Korea diplomacy. One is that he will continue to do what he has done and simply ignore it, cover his ears and pretend that nothing is wrong, even if North Korea launches an ICBM or, uh, God forbid, conv- uh, you know, conducts a nuclear test, uh, which I think is probably less likely at this point. Um, but the reasons for that, I think, being, you know, the Trump administration has really set up North Korea as a major victory, and the president is not one to really take responsibility for any kind of defeat, so to speak. So ignoring North Korea, something that he's done to date with over, you know, 26 missile tests so far, uh, could be an option. The other option, though, is that we go back to where we left off in 2017. We get threats of fire and fury. Uh, and this is really, I think, one of the biggest risks to Northeast Asia, a, a renewed round of crisis with North Korea. And the North Koreans, I think their options are also uh, becoming rather tight. We have had some interesting developments, though. I mean, um, here in New York City, the Russian and Chinese delegations at the UN have mooted sanctions relief measures at the United Nations Security Council. So that's something to watch early in the next year. Um, And the dynamics there, I think, are quite misunderstood in the sense that this is not North Korea really coordinating with Russia and China to get sanctions relief done at the UN. I think it's more an attempt by the North Koreans or an attempt by the Russians and the Chinese to show the North Koreans that they are willing to advocate on their behalf in New York, but that might become more difficult if the North Koreans begin acting out. I don't think the Russians and the Chinese want the North Koreans to go back to nuclear testing or ICBM testing. So floating these sanctions relief measures at the UN is a good way to show North Korea that Russia and China appreciate their adherence to their moratorium on long-range missile testing and nuclear testing, and they should continue to adhere by that. So it'll be interesting to see if the North Koreans do ignore that and they do conduct some kind of major demonstration if Russia and China simply abandon that. But yeah, that's the uh, that's you know something that I'm going to be following very closely in the coming year is um, the uh, overall deterioration. And you know uh, we have to also mention the inter-Korean context where things have really I think fallen off a cliff uh, for President Moon Jae-in. Uh, especially with uh, South Korea coming up on uh, assembly elections. That's going to be uh, something quite important, I think, the souring of inter-Korean ties and the South Korean public's sort of um, coming to terms with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, with it seems like we're headed for a, a very interesting year in North Korea. We have the legislative elections in South Korea, as you pointed out, the expiry of this sort of deadline from North Korea, and a U.S. presidential election, so <laughs> definitely seems to be one that will be very interesting to watch next year. Yeah, I think I think the notion. So you know, just one more thing to add is that I think the notion that North Korea, you know, Trump has tweeted, I think that North Korea shouldn't interfere in the U.S. election, and God knows what he means by that, given that he, you know, still won't <laughs> really own up to Russian election interference. But I don't think, you know, North Korea policy is not something that many American voters are really thinking about when they are thinking about who they're going to vote for, especially along party lines. Uh, so I think that's probably not where this is going to go, that the North Koreans are really going to tilt the scales on how the American public thinks about uh, certainly President Trump or any Democrats here. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, going forward, you know, North Korea is certainly going to remain at the top of the diplomatic agenda next year. Uh, right. So uh, turning it back to you, what's your uh, what's your second thing to look forward to next year? I think this, the second thing that will be important to note next year is uh, Taiwan's upcoming elections, which will be early next year. Um, and I think the, you know, Taiwan elections are always very interesting to watch, right? So the the, the quality of debate and the extent of conversation that you get uh, ahead of the elections. Um, and I, when I was actually in Taiwan earlier this year, I heard a lot of conversations already about the lead up to uh, the presidential campaign. But I think in the context of you know U.S.-China tensions that are continuing this year, 
Um, you have a presidential year in the, in the United States, and the United States is a, is a key uh, ally of Taiwan. Um, and where I guess, you know, in some of these major Asia elections, we have talked about in the past, you know, issues of managing foreign interference and disinformation has been almost a routine storyline in several of these key elections. And I expect in Taiwan, it's going to be an issue as well. We have elections next year in uh, countries like Myanmar, countries like Singapore, potentially, uh, they have un- announced a date yet. But, you know, Taiwan is viewed as, you know, sort of ground zero for these uh, broader trends that observers look at, whether it's Chinese coercion or disinformation or foreign interference. And, you know, there's cross-strait relations and and Taiwan are also one of the key flashpoints that we watch in, in Asia. So, you know, irrespective of what the outcome is in, in Taiwan's elections, whether we see Tsai Ing-wen get uh, another term or whether we see another outcome, um, I think those will be uh, very important developments to watch. And the other thing is, you know, even if Tsai Ing-wen gets a second term, you know, how she acts uh, and how her administration acts uh, thereafter will also be interesting to watch given the mandate that they receive. And that will kind of play into broader things that we talk about on the podcast regularly, which is, you know, U.S.-China relations, you know, how countries are dealing with growing Chinese assertiveness and the like. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's something that, you know, I think we're going to be dealing with very early. Uh, the election is going to take place on January 11th, 2020. Uh, so certainly it will be one of the biggest stories to kick off the year. Uh, I think the strategy in Beijing has really been to turn this election into a referendum on Tsai Ing-wen's cross-strait diplomacy, or rather the mm-hmm. lack thereof. China has shown that, you know, China's trying to convey to the Taiwanese people that size, um, you know, independence-leaning approach to stewarding Taiwan um, has not yielded positive dividends, right? So China's been isolating Taiwanese diplomatic mm-hmm. allies, uh, plucking them away from Taiwan, um, crunching Taiwan's uh, economic options across the across the strait. And of course, the interference efforts that you referred to, I think, are, are really uh, poorly understood still. We had a really great article on this in our recent issue of the magazine by uh, Russell Shao. Again, recommend uh, listeners mm-hmm. take a look at that to get a thorough overview of all the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party's uh, United Front Work Department has uh, undertaken uh, efforts in in Taiwan to try and influence the elections. Um, but you know, if if, if Tsai Ing-wen does win uh, does win re-election, I mean, that's going to be a pretty stark, I think, affirmation of uh, um, of you know Taiwan's will to greater self determination and uh, and you know not necessarily independence, but to pursue the the DPP favored path of uh, of of maintaining Taiwan's autonomy. And especially uh, as, uh, you know, again, going back to the U.S. here for a bit, we have seen signs that the U.S. under the Trump administration is um, is willing to uh, continue the strong relationship with Taiwan. Uh, 2019 marked the uh, 40th year anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act, a major year for um, for the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. So I think that, too, I think we should see how that navigates. We have had a few staff departures uh, recently that I think might make Taiwan fall off the top of the Indo-Pacific agenda a little bit. Uh, you know, I think uh, in particular, um, the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Indo-Pacific, uh, Randy Shriver, is uh, stepping down soon. And uh, his departure, I think, is is perhaps going to feed back in a way uh, that makes U.S.-Taiwan policy less um, less of a priority for the administration than it was this year. But certainly, I think this is going to be one of the biggest stories to watch for this year. So, yeah, I'm absolutely right there with you. Um, early 2020, we're going to be uh, kicking off uh, with a uh, with a close look at Taiwan. Yeah, absolutely. I think your point about staff departures is really important, right? Because historically, with respect to U.S.-Taiwan policy, personnel are, are really a particularly important uh, marker for development of policy. And so, 
you know, the departure of Randy Shriver and also uh, John Bolton, um, who have been advocates for, you know, better relationship with Taiwan, um, you know, are going to affect how the Trump administration navigates the, this issue, particularly because I think, you know, we've had reporting um, in the past suggest that, you know, uh, to the extent that we've seen uh, better U.S.-Taiwan relations under Trump, you know, Trump has sometimes acted as a lid on that as opposed to an accelerant and that, you know, there are individuals within the administration that are actually promoting better ties with Taiwan. But, you know, Trump, in, in some senses, in his, you know, sort of wheel and deal fashion, uh, really has been containing uh, that effort. So that that's certainly something to flag. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your uh, second uh, issue to to watch in 2020? Sure. Yeah, this was actually the one I was going to kick off on, but it seemed like a better segue to go with North Korea first. But I think I think one of the biggest stories in 2020 is really going to be uh, India's political trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, 2019 has been, to put it lightly, I think a very significant year domestically for India, uh, even in even in terms of regional security policy. Right. We had a remarkable uh, February right. skirmish between India and Pakistan. Uh, but the second half of the year, particularly after uh, the Bharatiya Janata Party, India's uh, nationally dominant uh Hindu Nationalist Party um, won a historic mandate in the general election, uh, which uh, the results were announced in late May 2019, gave Prime Minister Narendra Modi a second term. Um, and what we've seen is that, um, I talked a little bit about this on the last episode, but basically the Indian government, uh, as the national economy flags, GDP growth indicators are not as favorable as they used to be, has now turned towards enacting a divisive social agenda across the whole country, right? So we can begin with the August 5th uh, decision by Home Minister Amit Shah and Narendra Modi to change the internal status of the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir, which has now been divided into two union territories of Ladakh and another one called Jammu and Kashmir, uh, still under lockdown, still with internet shutdowns, a lot of international scrutiny. But not only that, uh, more recently, uh, all over the country, you have student protests in India uh, over the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act, which passed mm -hmm. both houses of parliament in India recently, um, and the National Register of Citizens. And uh, the argument that India's um, liberals and opponents of the government have been making is that together the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens will effectively provide the Modi government with a very powerful institutional toolkit to uh, alienate India's um, Muslim minority. And when I say minority, I'm talking about, you know, 200 million people in India. Uh, India is one of the largest um, Muslim countries in terms of uh, absolute population size, uh, just given the size of that minority. So uh, the question now is um, we're seeing... Um, all sorts of international criticism of India in a way that we really haven't seen uh, in uh, Modi's first term. Of course, when Modi was elected in 2014, there was uh, a lot of concern about you know his legacy in Gujarat as chief minister and how he would bring that same sort of uh, divisive conduct to the national prime ministership. Uh, for listeners that might not be aware, Modi was, uh, although he was acquitted by the Indian Supreme Court, uh, many people in India still hold him responsible for the uh, communal riots that took place in Gujarat in 2002 that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of uh, Muslims and Hindus um, over uh, over religious issues. Uh, so the question going into 2020 is, you know, does India continue down this path? Uh, when Modi was first elected in 2014, you sort of had you know, the international investor class view the BJP's election as potentially promising for economic reform. The BJP was seen as a center-right party that might take 
uh, into consideration some of the bitter medicine of structural economic reform that uh, the previous Congress-led alliance was unwilling to implement. Um, there was some of that during the first term, did not go very well. There was experimentation with things like demonetization. The goods and services tax uh, was something that you know investors had long seen as a positive development, was implemented poorly. And now we see sort of a negative correlation between India's economic performance and the rise of Hindu nationalism. So the big question is, does that continue? And then there are other, you know, second order and third order effects for Indian diplomacy and foreign policy. Uh, you know, one of the consequences, for example, of the National Register of Citizens and the Citizenship Amendment Act is that it is probably going to feed back negatively in India's regional mm -hmm. diplomacy, particularly with Bangladesh, which has been a very important relationship and one of the successes, I would say, of Modi's neighborhood policy, certainly from his first term. So there are questions now about the trajectory of the India-Bangladesh relationship in the neighborhood. Uh, but also one of the big things is uh, the India-U.S. relationship. I just wrote about this recently, but, um, you know, I'm starting to see signs that, and I'm not the only one, I'm starting to see signs that the India-U.S. relationship is sort of closing the door on about 20 years of bipartisan support for a strong U.S.-India relationship. Uh, the support is still there in the United States, but at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, there is a more, uh, you know, there's a growing tendency now for many Democrats, progressive, center-left Democrats, to openly question India's trajectory and India's Democratic bona fides. And if that continues into next year, into an election year in the United States, uh, I think we might see the India-U.S. relationship also uh, develop in an interesting way. So that's uh, something I'm keeping an eye on, Prashant. I don't know if you have thoughts on uh, where, uh, where all this is going with India. No, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the the fact that you illustrated that last point there about um, India's external relationships, including with the United States, raises a you know a bigger question that we've seen, I guess maybe not to the same extent with lead, some of the Asian leaders that we've seen in the past. So, Prime Minister Abe in Japan, uh, Prime Minister Najib uh, in uh, Malaysia, who's no longer in office, uh, these leaders that you know promulgate a sort of uh, a very advanced notion of foreign policy very activist um, and sometimes aligned with u.s objectives but domestically sometimes they may take actions with respect to ideology uh religion um in in najib's case right. you know erosion of freedoms uh and human rights uh that the united states and other countries might find very difficult to actually stomach so i i suspect to to a certain extent this you know the the dynamic that we've seen in India and Prime Minister Modi in this uh, new term uh, reflects kind of that ongoing dynamic. I mean, how do external countries engage these countries where there's a little bit of a disjuncture in terms of their foreign policy and their domestic uh, politics? Uh, and that not only affects, as you correctly pointed out, their internal dynamics, but also foreign policy. Um, and different uh, countries and different political parties within those countries will have different ways and different opinions about how to navigate uh, those relationships. And I think you're right to point out in the U.S. sense, um, you know, we really have seen uh, some folks speak out very fervently about uh, some of the dynamics that we've seen in, in Modi's India and what that could, uh, you know, sort of lead to in a different administration other than the Trump administration, where human rights and ideals might be prioritized a little bit more, relatively speaking. Yeah. And, you know, the only other thing is that um, Kashmir, I think, still remains very important going into 2020. Uh, it could be, again, the cauldron for some kind of major India-Pakistan crisis, depending on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what transpires. For example, if we do have a repeat, unfortunately, of the kind of attack that we saw on Indian forces in mid-February this year that led to the eventual skirmish between India and Pakistan. Tensions are certainly very high in the Kashmir Valley. It is also very highly securitized still. 
uh, with hundreds of thousands of Indian paramilitary and military personnel uh, in, in the Kashmir Valley. Uh, so we'll have to uh, keep a close eye on that going into next year as well. All right. So, uh, Prashant, with that, uh, what is your third and final uh, trend to look forward to as uh, 2020 approaches? So I, I, I was uh, toying with how to frame this, but I think I would frame it more generally in terms of the evolving situation in the South China Sea. Now, the South China Sea has been, you know, a flashpoint, which we've talked about, you know, plenty of times on the podcast. And I think, you know, every year you could make a case for the South China Sea being uh, a big issue to watch uh, on any yearly uh, forecast. But I do think 2020 will be a particularly um, interesting year with respect to how the South China Sea uh, evolves. Uh, I think for a number of reasons. I mean, one is, you know, the fact that you have Vietnam, uh, which is, you know, by far the most active uh, claimant in the South China Sea of, of the four uh, Southeast Asian claimants, uh, ho holding the leadership of ASEAN in, in 2020, it's going to be very difficult for the Vietnamese government to uh, actually avoid strong statements on, on the South China Sea um, and actually speak out against what some of the Chinese actions are uh, in the South China Sea. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why I think it'd be notable to watch. I mean, the other uh, thing that's interesting is you saw in the early stages of, um, you know, President Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines that you saw this notion of a China-Philippines um, sort of at least understanding on the South China Sea and pursuit of things like joint development. But those things have been moving quite slowly. Um, and I suspect that in 2020, we could see um, a little bit of, um, you know, a continuation of issues uh, on that front. And the other thing is, you know, we had some optimism over this notion of a code of conduct uh, with respect to China and ASEAN and the South China Sea. But it, there's been, you know, a trend of continued watering down of that code of conduct. And the essential question uh, for 2020 is, you know, is this the year where if we've seen a stress on this notion that the Chinese are, are keen to promote, which is that, you know, everything in the South China Sea has been calm after this, you know, post-2016 uh, arbitral tribunal ruling on the South China Sea, you know, could 2020 be the year where we see the wheels really come off? Um, and I think there are reasons to think that that could be the case, but even if we don't see the wheels come off entirely, you know, I think the the recent events that we saw in 2019, whether it be China-Vietnam tensions uh, in the South China Sea, um, Malaysia, in fact, very recently uh, issuing a sort of claim on the extended continental shelf, um, and some of these other developments, you know, you look further ahead, Brunei is set to assume the ASEAN chairmanship for 2021. So they'll not be left with the option of being quiet on the South China Sea in, in 2020. You put all of that together, I think you have a pretty interesting case for uh, the South China Sea being a, a bit of a flashpoint in 2020 more so than uh, it was in 2019. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all very compelling. And certainly uh, you continue to see an appetite among regional powers to continue presence operations, naval presence operations in the South China Sea, uh, trilateral, quadrilateral, uh, coordinated exercises, if not, you know, patrols, which I think uh, especially uh, freedom of navigation operations, I think will pretty much still remain uh, in the domain of the United States and the South China Sea. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of factors here that will make us um, at least bring the South China Sea back up the news cycle, uh, you know, kind of where it used to be back in uh, 2016, so to speak. Uh, it has been uh, sort of down the radar for a bit, especially given the Trump administration's uh, general 
silence on on many of these issues um but of course you know we'll have to we'll have to look to see how some of these uh, developments um come together next year i am i am quite curious to see how uh, malaysia's uh, submission on the extended continental shelf to the commission on the limits of the continental shelf of the un uh that how that ends up developing next year and whether vietnam decides that it's going to uh, take any other legal action, especially given uh, the very turbulent year that it just experienced with China and the South China Sea. Uh, there's also a few other developments that I think are worth watching, including um, rumblings about India potentially selling the Philippines, the Brahmos mm -hmm. supersonic missile. Uh, that would be a very, very uh, significant capability upgrade for the Philippines military, uh, which continues to be uh, one of the region's major laggards, especially given the size of the country. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, we'll certainly be uh, talking about the South China Sea as a diplomat uh, in uh, in 2020. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is important to remind listeners, too. I mean, this is beyond just dynamics in Southeast Asia, one of the world's most important you know, waterways. And increasingly, it's not just been about just the climates, but, you know, a flashpoint for U.S.-China rivalry uh, as well. So, you know, it'll be very interesting to watch in 2020. Um, what was your third and, and final uh, thing to watch for 2020 in terms of forecasts? Yeah, so, you know, I thought I thought we have to uh, mention Afghanistan. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. 2020, I think, is, you know, every year, every year of the past uh, two decades, really, I think Afghanistan has been at the top of the, uh, at, at, at the, top of the geopolitical agenda uh, in Asia. Uh, but certainly, I think we're heading into 2020 with a, a very precarious state of affairs. I mean, we just got the first set of official uh, election results from the election commission right before we started doing this podcast today. And it looks like, you know, it confirms what most people expected, which is that uh, Ashraf Ghani, the incumbent Afghan president, appears poised to win the election, uh, to win the presidency, uh, with uh, his former chief executive in the national unity government, Abdullah Abdullah, left behind. So we have a very familiar state of affairs to what happened in 2014. But of course, in 2014, we had a diplomatically capable and engaged United States, uh, you know, Secretary of State John Kerry managed to broker the National Unity Government Agreement. That was certainly not mm. ideal, but it kept things from absolutely disintegrating. Um, and if you look at the election commission results in Afghanistan, you see a north-south divide, right? Very much predictable with Af uh, Abdullah Abdullah taking uh, most of the northern parts of the country and Ghani uh, certainly um, securing much of the Pashtun belt in the southern part of the country. So going into 2020, uh, how will the election results be reconciled? Will they be accepted by Afghans? Will there be greater uncertainty? Will the United States have to intervene? These are, I think, many questions that I think pertain to the political um, state of affairs in Afghanistan. But then there's the other, uh, you know, talking about the political uh, situation with the Afghan government, um, you begin to realize how little of Afghan territory uh, is, you know, solidly under the control of this government, especially with the Taliban maintaining certainly a very robust presence uh, as the Afghan war continues into its uh, 19th year uh, in, in 2020, the United States' longest war. Uh, of course, in September, we saw President Trump completely torpedo uh, his special envoys, Almay Khalilzad's uh, efforts to bring together some sort of a deal with the Taliban. And the state of U.S. Taliban talks remains very uncertain as 2020 comes to a close. So another big question is, uh, you know, do we see any kind of major deal with the Taliban? You know, Trump, I think, uh, although he might not say this much publicly, I think I think Trump would certainly welcome the opportunity in, a, in an election year to take dramatic action on Afghanistan to finally become that American president that can really change the terms of the U.S military presence in Afghanistan. And maybe this is one of those things where given what I said earlier on the episode, which is that the administration is 
uh, full of people that are far less likely to second guess the president. Uh, maybe Afghanistan is somewhere we do see dramatic change in in how the United States uh, maneuvers itself. So that's something I think uh, you know we'll be we'll all be keeping a close eye on uh, going into 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think you know the as you said, Afghanistan has been sort of this. Uh, issue that's been on the list uh, on an annual basis, but but for right reasons, right? I mean, as we've discussed previously on on the podcast, it's just something that you know it drags in countries, you know, not only the United States but also you know Pakistan, India, Russia, China. This is something that you know serves as an issue where various powers have have an interest about uh, the resolution. And I suspect that's going to be the the case in 2020 as well. I mean, I I would say the. The other thing about the aspect of the U.S. presence is, as you as you pointed out, you know, this is often advertised as something as being, you know, the the, the longest uh, U.S. war uh, that actually the United States has been involved in, uh, and it's also uh, sort of spotlighted uh, a key issue in in U.S. foreign policy, which is, you know, we're on this uh, podcast and talking about Asia. Afghanistan has been a, 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 an example where the United States has been involved for a very long time. And it's actually viewed in some Asian capitals as being as distracting from where U.S. priority should be, which is focused on East Asia. But if you think about a broader conception uh, of Asia, Afghanistan would be, you know, sort of a logical part of it. And so I, I definitely think that in 2020, people in Asia will be looking to see how the United States engages in this broader Middle East Central Asian uh, region to see what bandwidth the United States has to engage in, you know, other issues and areas, China. Southeast Asia, the Pacific, and so on and so forth. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think, uh, you know, even the Trump administration's own strategic documents, including the national security strategy and national defense strategy, uh, have also acknowledged the need for that, right? I mean, if you're going to talk about great power competition with Russia and China, uh, you can't be uh, bogged down in quagmires in uh, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and Mm -hmm. Syria much longer. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely something that many other capitals will be keeping an eye on uh, going into the next year. Uh, so there are so many other things that we could have talked about on this episode. I mean, you know, just to name a few kind of honorable mentions that I'm going to be watching for next year. Uh, you know, I am very curious to see the trajectory of, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative more broadly next year, uh, especially given some very interesting, uh, ha- you know, goings on in countries like, uh, the Maldives, uh, Sri Lanka, um, Malaysia, Pakistan, uh, over the, over the last year, year and a half, seeing how uh, many of those threads carry on into, into 2020 and how, much of an emphasis China continues to apply uh, on this project. Uh, other issues uh, to look at include, I think, uh, you know, broader um, broader developments, uh, including uh, the prevalence of non-state groups uh, in in uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, uh, regional terrorism, which we've talked about a fair bit on this podcast before. Uh, seeing some of those trends as well. So, unfortunately, Prashant, we can't cover it all, but we will be back next year uh, to uh, certainly talk about many of these issues uh, as they uh, surface in the uh, in the Asia Pacific news cycle. Uh, but I wanted to thank yeah, you for uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for joining me uh, on on the podcast uh, this year. Certainly, I'm uh, looking forward to being, uh, being back in 2020 to talk about many of these issues and more with you. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Great. Um, so for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a new decade worth of podcasts that are sure to uh, be just around the corner. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. We'd really appreciate that. And if you have any suggestions about the podcast, uh, the content that you'd like to see on future episodes, any topics that you think are undercovered, please do shoot either me or Prashant a note on email or Twitter. We're happy to take that into consideration. We do take that into consideration when planning future episodes. We really, uh, really do uh, 
appreciate your feedback. It's always good to interact with our listeners, um, see what they're uh, thinking about and uh, what they're interested in. Uh, And finally, before we close out, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.